Hey everybody, it's Ashley, and you're listening to Let's Get Dark. The fiery and tragic end of the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God was not accidental. It had been planned from the moment of its conception. The organization drew heavily from many other volatile cults, primarily the Catholic Church, where they acquired the majority of their leadership and members. Modern-day Uganda, similar to most of its neighboring countries, didn't exist until the turn of the 20th century. It is 92 square miles of tropical land nestled in the heart of the African continent, surrounded by Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Sudan. During this time, dynasties and kingdoms that had been around so long that their origins are obscure were being restructured and unified, and with the arrival of European and Arab colonial management, Uganda, as it is known today, began to be shaped by their total obedience of the rules and forces of change. Ugandans are friendly people who have learned to disregard the historical trauma that has been inflicted upon them through slavery, disease, and wars. They hold strong to and cherish the traditional African values of acceptance and have overall rejected the divisiveness and hatred that colonizers have attempted to instill in them through racism and religion throughout history. Uganda's mythological creation story dates back to the year A.D. 1000, under the command of Ruhanga, the creator. According to oral tradition, the first inhabitants of the land were the Abadambuzi, the founders. They are believed to have been gods, and it is believed that they have since disappeared back to heaven because of the social strife and disobedience of their subjects. It's kind of a standard storyline. The Abadambuzi would later be succeeded by a dynasty of demigods called the Bakwazi. The Bakwazi's first ruler was Esibwa, the son of Nyamate, daughter of the last ruler of the dynasty, Royanga, who was the last ruler of an earlier dynasty and had descended from the creator. This was a link between the human and the divine. The explorers who came to this region and, quote-unquote, discovered various lakes and areas of high geographical potential and wealth within a country that was already inhabited, established, and thriving. Soon, lakes and mountains would be renamed to reflect the colonial invasion. These explorers paved the way for the missionaries that came next, who are heralded as pioneers exploring the, quote, unknown Though, like author Bernard Autuher noted in the book I read for this, The Ugandan Cult Tragedy, it should be acknowledged that they entered into a world that had already embraced its own political structures, religions, and beliefs on creation. The situation was bound to generate an atmosphere of conflict and misunderstanding. The people of the region were primarily monotheistic, with a series of gods and spirits that they showed adoration and made sacrifices to. The big god was known by various names, including Ruhanga, Katanda, Kazuba, Nyamhunga. The little gods and spirits were most often referred to as Imandwa, and typically clans of people would gather and make offerings for protection. Then the missionaries rode in, knights in shining armor, proclaiming that there was a capital G God who created the entire universe. Although the African beliefs in a monotheistic God with lesser spirits and gods was almost identical to the Catholic belief of God and the saints, the Africans' beliefs were shunned. The missionaries said that there just wasn't a clear enough distinction between the gods. The African beliefs were suppressed and replaced. 
Same wig, different drag queen. The missionaries needed to establish good relations with the kings in order to garner their support and the permission to trade within their kingdoms. First came Islam in the mid-19th century, followed shortly after by the Anglicans, and a couple years later, the Roman Catholics festered their way onto the scene. The missionaries would give gifts of cotton cloth, mirrors, beads, powder, and guns, and the kings would approve of the missionaries' work. Kings would choose to favor one missionary over another based off of who could promise the most lavish favors, which sounds just about identical to any political system I've ever heard in my life, modern day. The entire horrible missionary situation would never have been so successful without the help of the old dudes of colonialism. At the Berlin Conference of 1894, Africa was divided between a number of European powers, with Uganda under the, quote, protection of British rule. Colonial rule continued to tighten its treacherous tentacles throughout Africa. Missionary work really began living its best destructive life, and the paganism that formerly reigned was cast aside, and pretty much everyone began subscribing to the tales of Jesus H. Christ. Which brings us to the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God, or the movement, as I will call it, so that I don't have to say 17,000 words every time I bring them up. The movement found a sanctuary in the secluded and winding hills of the Kambugaga, of the Kambuga, Kanungu, Kihihi, in southwestern Uganda. If the movement's message of following the teachings of the commandments or else burned for eternity were accurate, why did its loyal followers all get burned alive? The leaders of this movement were, first and foremost, Joseph Kibwetir. He was considered the supreme leader of the movement. Much like other cult leaders that we've discussed on the show, Joseph was a real jack-of-all-trades, having previously held jobs as a teacher, politician, inspector of local Catholic schools, businessman, founder of a school, and the list goes on. Sounds like a little L. Ron Hubbard, if you ask me. He also had a preoccupation with visions and visionaries, which inevitably put him on the road he traveled to become the, quote, supreme leader. In the early 80s, Joseph bore witness to a woman named Credonia, whose visions at the, at the Catholic diocese led him to continuing to be influenced by her preachings for the rest of his life, straight into the movement, as what is thought to be the first super legit convert to the religion, quote unquote. The next was Credonia Merwindi, otherwise known as the programmer. Credonia claimed to see visions of the Virgin Mary and Jesus Christ on a stone that stood at the entrance to a cave located conveniently near her former home. In one instance, she said she saw an image of the Virgin Mary turning her back on the world for the sinful state it had devolved into. She's fairly self-righteous for someone that claimed to have a virgin birth. She then began to argue that it was time for the world to repent or else feel the wrath from God that would follow. Credonia claimed that the Virgin Mary told her to look for a man named Joseph Kibwitir and inform him of his heavenly position. 
they had, end quote, urgent message to spread of doom and destruction, disease and war, all vague enough to easily apply to any current situations and set the scene for the community to easily fall for manipulation and being taken advantage of due to their hopes of being saved from all of this destruction that is going on at all times. Then there were also a few shunned Catholic priests who helped lend some legitimacy to the movement and helped draw new members to the group, along with the other more, quote, trustworthy members of society that had joined the movement's ranks. The movement most assuredly had a hierarchical structure, which allowed for favorable conditions for a few at the detriment of others. The leaders were essentially living it up, and their relatives and close friends enjoyed the benefits of this as well. For a little more background, back in 1978, a self-professed visionary named Sephoroza claimed the Virgin Mary came to her in a swamp by her home in southwestern Uganda. She proclaimed that the Virgin told her to inform the people of the curative powers of drinking swamp water, which could cure all illness. The catch was that the cure only worked if you had faith. Ten years later, another self-professed seer, Nanyanga, claimed that the cure was created by dissolving, quote, miraculous soil in water and drinking it. This would reverse all diseases, most importantly, she said, AIDS. While these earlier visions focused mainly on the curative properties of the soil, the movement took an entirely different approach, focusing on apocalypsis, or as we know the term today, a doomsday cult. And they were most effective because they were able to establish a foundation of credible members of society that helped to legitimize the cult. It was so effective because as formal education was introduced to the local community via colonial rule, it was monopolized by the elite, and thus the majority of the population was left without any education whatsoever. The importance of education was only paid lip service by the colonizers, as in reality, the education of the masses would only serve to undermine and jeopardize those privileged elite. Additionally, the church and education became intrinsically linked, with religious teachings playing a huge role in pretty much all members of society being forced to attend church if they were not able to afford a formal education. Paying the church tithe was still somehow obligatory, and impoverished families were shunned for not being able to tithe enough on the reg. Don't even get me fucking started about that shit. As many religions are wont to do, the teaching focus primarily on fear and total submission was stressed to its members. What's fucking new? Then came the prevalence of HIV, which left millions of African people watching their loved ones become extremely sick with no hope of a cure, which left the door wide open for the movement to come in and claim to be the answer, the cure for all that ailed the African continent. Additionally, at the time, Uganda was recovering from an eight-year reign of terror under brutal tyrant Idi Amin Dada, and when he was finally overthrown, another war began between Milton Oboe's regime and Yaweri Museveni's guerrilla movement. Many believed that these were the signs of the end times, and you can see how this fear lent itself to an apocalyptic belief. I mean, think about now. We're the same boat. You know, 
An Italian seer, the movement hailed as reliable, who they called Blessed Anna Maria Taiga, had supposedly had a vision and foretold that, quote, God will send two punishments. One will be the form of wars, revolutions, and other evils. It shall originate on earth. The other will be sent from heaven. Again, as far back as there were humans, there has been war, and these seers keep these incredibly vague visions in order to have it unconditionally apply to the all-time periods at any moment, no matter what. You could just be like, yes, this is the end times right now, every 10 years. Various other natural disasters occurred, lending, quote, credence to the apocalyptic prophecies foretold by these seers. In the end, the basic message of the movement was clear. The current generation was so full of sin on every possible level to the point that the creator had decided to completely destroy it. The old Noah's Ark situation. But Jesus, my Jesus, and the Virgin Mary begged him to give all those heathens a second chance to restore those Ten Commandments. Their failure to do this would result in the end of their generation and beginning of another one. This would begin with a series of chastisements dealt by JC and the Verge, and once all was said and done, only a quarter of the population would survive these chastisements. It sounds a little kinky if you ask me. A quick rundown of some of these chastisements includes, but is not limited to, the following. Number 11. There will be great tribulation upon all the people such that has never before been experienced by any person since the creation of the world. Those who will not, ha those who will not have repented their sins will experience it the most. 12. There will be terrifying apparitions having force that has never before been experienced or seen by any person. 14. A bunch of warnings about famine and crops being killed from the ground up, and then this little gem. Number 16. Many foodstuffs will turn into poison. Those who have no children will steal from other parents. People who are stronger than others will attempt to kill the weaker ones and eat them. Pure cannibalism. Number 20, domestic animals would develop a poison to kill their masters in a bunch of other ways that they would kill them. But basically, watch out, all animals would be out to kill you. They're furious. Yes, here we go. More importantly, domestic animals like cats and dogs already are possessed by the devil. So just kill them anyway, because they're already possessed by the devil. Duh. Have you ever met a cat before? Alcoholic drinks would turn to poison and kill whoever drinks them. So not much has changed in that department. Number 23, fierce animals will come from the ground, from the mountains, from the oceans with the sole purpose of hunting humans down. This, to be fair, sounds like it might work. 24, terrible storms, earthquakes, enormous hailstones, winds would destroy the earth. Mountains, lakes, rivers, and other inanimate objects would move to other places. They're just like, I'm fucking out of here. I've been here long enough. Bodies of water would turn to blood and then dry up. And then obviously people would go thirsty because we're all relying on those little lakes. Women would begin running around carrying goats and small dogs in their wombs. I know that's the first thing I'm thinking about at the end times is how in the hell 
can I get some goat or small dog all up in my womb? I mean, is it that much to ask? Clouds would fall from the sky, hitting people who would oftentimes die as a result of this. But I'm going to call bullshit on that because clouds are soft as fuck, right? I mean, someone tell me that. I mean, I just don't think that's right. It's just gases. Someone tell me. Come on. 37, which I've stopped counting, but 37 is all about the triple six mark of Satan. Basically, devils were going to be rising up out of the ground, left and right, torturing people, stealing their food, hurting them, blah, giving them aids. Okay. All right. Uh, the lamest of all the roles. Can we just get it together? Number 45 is a good one. People will develop a hatred for one another. Huh, too late to think on that one, bud. Uh, so then Jesus supposedly listed out 46 different countries and what would happen to them if they didn't restore these damn commandments. He is on a mission to get these commandments restored. According to the movement, Uganda was the land chosen by the Lord to become the new Israel, the second Israel, the nation that loved God the very most. And so the exploitation of the people's current hardships, all with the promise of relief by simply joining the movement, began. And so began the exploitation of the people's current hardships, all with the promise of relief by simply joining the movement. Easy as that. They used a simple they used a triple threat technique of fake scientific discoveries, new age fiction, and the old Bible. So again, Nothing has fucking ever changed in any place. <laughs> if any of this sounds familiar, it's because the movement shared common beliefs with a bunch of other cults around the world, particularly Heaven's Gate. The movement folks just loved the idea of the comet bringing about the destruction of Earth because all the good stuff comes when you're dead. So let's just get the fuck out of here. That said, we've seen it before, multiple separate days, which were supposed to be the last of the current generation's days, and they came and passed, and so the movement began to issue specific but changeable dates of the end days. It was always changing, so that's why we're never getting it right. With every inaccurate prediction of end days, the faith and patience of the already less than thrilled members wore more and more thin, understandably so. How, how many times can your, you know, prophets fail you with this prediction and you just keep hanging on? It just seems like it would take a little bit of the wind out of your sails for that little goodbye, you know? How many times can you prepare yourself to die the next day or whatever? probably only so many. And, you know, you're like, you're scamming me and you've ruined my life. That's probably what you're starting to think at this point. The movement chose locations for their centers that were isolated and difficult to find. This was likely due in part to their maintaining secrecy, but it was also a tactic to make defecting the church extremely difficult, essentially trapping the members in, which, you know, is always a very, very, very positive move to be making. It's reminding me a lot right now of Dennis with a boat, it's the implication. So any travel to and subsequently from a center was carried out at night. And this was in order to maintain their secretive character and also in order to make it difficult for members to be able to ever escape because they couldn't see shit. 
the initial stages of induction into the movement were conducted as houses of prayer within the homes of some of its members, which became an inconvenience for the family members that didn't believe in joining the cult because all these people were always around doing all this stuff all the time. Those members would be regarded as sinners and then shunned within their own now overcrowded homes. Some people had to abandon their home altogether against their will, which sounds awfully familiar to the FLDS shit, if you want to go back whenever that was, somewhere there in the back catalog. As the movement grew, the families that had resisted their control began to give away the movement's control. Soon, the movement would be responsible for settling any issues that arose within families instead of the families taking care of themselves, which, again, this is all good stuff, isn't it? It's great when you give over all your control to your whole life to your fucking church. Now, let's get it together and try to have it be a little bit more of a symbiotic relationship, you know? At this point, you got to think of the church a little bit like a parasite sometimes or else you're not being objective and then they're taking advantage in some cases like here in the movement children and teens had no choice but to join and as is the case with many of the cults that we have and will discuss in the future this meant that their numbers flourished under forced consent once a part of the movement, children would almost always completely be cut off from their parents who would be sent out on missions and oftentimes would have never even joined the movement at all, but their children were left with them, free laborers. And this, again, I'm sorry that I'm always hearkening back to some other episode, but this reminds me of Children of God, where once they were in the cult, the children were just kind of shared by everyone, which is just probably the worst possible scenario with people that don't give a shit about whatever kid and are being forced to, you know, raise them at the most delicate psychological formative years of their lives. Good. Even when children and parents were placed in centers together, they were prohibited from showing any affection or making any reference to the fact that they once had, quote, family relations. Children were forbidden from using the terms mother and father at all. But there were plenty of willing members who left all they possessed behind and became shining examples to the rest of the people. As their numbers grew, at some point in the mid-1990s, they began to establish larger centers named in a way to help mystify them and give them the old Jesus razzle-dazzle. Eventually, they needed to reduce the number of centers for various reasons, most significantly the cost of keeping them up, and the headquarters of the movement was Credonia's home that she shared with her family in a remote gorge in Eningo. Within a few months, an incredible amount of construction of buildings had taken place. In order to avoid making the cult look bad, they spun it so that it seemed like a part of the prophetic vision was coming to fruition, with the followers gathering at the Ark. Oh, good. For the end times. Like any fucking racket aimed at recruiting more suckers into the mix every single day, the first targets were the existing members' families and friends, who they interacted with often, and then the friends of the family and extended out just like any old pyramid scheme we've all known and loved. Just kidding. No one should love them. Movement recruitment took an aggressive approach, and they tirelessly harassed potential followers no matter what. 
Clearly, with what we've talked about already, the cult used fear as their main tactic in convincing individuals that they simply must join or else they were going to be poisoned, eaten by their neighbor, and then roasting on a spit in hell for the rest of eternity. Spiritual terrorism. The most dangerous type, I think, perhaps, other than nuclear. They made the claim that no matter what you did, unless you joined the movement, it would be meaningless, as the secular world was so far gone that quote-unquote contamination would go on as long as any person didn't join the cult. The membership included an array of highfalutin individuals, from priests to teachers to police, in addition to the countryside peasants who found that the membership who were socially better off than them lended the movement some additional credibility and made them effective disciples. Although it has been said that poverty played a large role in recruiting new members, evidence suggests that it's not accurate as only a very small percentage of members joined for any kind of reason having to do with poverty or needing assistance. As things began to devolve within the movement, a large number of members began to desert. There is an extensive recorded list of all the deserters who had come to realize that the cult was a hoax and the real solution was to get the fuck out of there, be it due to the demand for money or the realization that they were scheming and a scamming. For many, escaping the cult was not exactly a clean break, and there were many documented accounts of post-desertion harassment. In many cases, family members that remained members would attempt to make life unbearable for those that had deserted. Deserters would sometimes have to leave their family home and take refuge in remote areas where no one could find them. Others would have to start completely from scratch with no resources because all their property and belongings had been sold off when they joined the movement. This suffering was obviously used by the cult who said the situation was clearly divine punishment for leaving the one true life path and they continued in the organized religion handbook of exploiting the weaknesses of others to scare them into following your religion. As I've established, the promise of salvation, of sweet release from uncertainty of death, was the big selling point for the movement. Once one entered, they were to sell off the property and all belongings and give all of the proceeds to the cult. This was true, of course, for all but the more elite members who, like many church figureheads, didn't practice what they preached and instead transferred select items and property to non-movement family who would keep it for them as needed. The customary practice in the region was that land and other property be partitioned in cases where families were divided. This was, however, not the case for females who were not entitled to any property or land and would be left nowhere with nothing if they did not join the cult. This essentially meant that women had no choice in the matter and were forced to join against their will. Great. On April 25th, 1984, Joseph Kibbutir allegedly had his very first, very own, very important visit from Jesus and the Verge. Among the messages that they delivered were instructions from heaven on how the members should appropriately allocate their time. It said that four-sevenths of the time of their day should be devoted to prayer. Somebody, please. Somebody please save me. One-seventh 
one-seventh of that time of their day should be dedicated to sleeping. And two-sevenths should be for other activities, you know, like work. I will fucking burn this place down, Joseph. The first prayer session ran, if you can even believe it, from 3 a.m. until 8 a.m., and the second from 6 p.m. until 10 p.m. Truly, they were living life to the fucking fullest, were they not? Prayers were recited as slowly as humanly possible, syllable by syllable, which, according to the leaders, was done to restore respect to prayer. Because most people excitedly hurried through prayers to finish as quickly as possible, and this ignored the essence and the purpose of the prayer. So, to balance this out, they'll be praying nine hours a day because there is no middle ground. I'll tell you one little tidbit of a story is I went to a Catholic church service one one Sunday, Saturday, I don't remember. And I was like, these motherfuckers are saying stuff so slow that I was struggling very hard to stay awake. And then you're telling me right now that we're going even slower than that? No, thank you. That is some boring shit right there. Most prayers were stand-up and kneel-down exercises, so at least they were getting some movement in those fucking extensive hours they were forced to attend church service. That two-sevenths of a day that was allotted for, quote, other activities almost always meant manual labor, always carried out by lower-ranking members and the young. This included but was not limited to construction, farming, and carpentry. The activities that every four-year-old boy should be taking part in, if you ask me. Food-wise, the movement was fairly self-sustainable and relied minimally on outside sources, which was one source of like, okay, good on y'all. You did one thing right. They grew many crops within the walls of their centers, enough to even have markets where they sold their crops, which was a significant source of their income. So again, fine. In that case, you fucking creeps, you know? Grow all the veggies and fruit that you can sell and market to the local community that you want. That's the only thing that you've done right thus far. Members were to be completely obedient to their, quote, rulers with no exceptions being made to the contrary, which sounds a bit much like my worst possible nightmare. Additionally, they were told from that point until the year 2000, the world would be experiencing a period referred to as the sieve, which would all culminate in three days of darkness, which would be the ending point for the current generation and the beginning of the new one. What exactly does that sound like to you? I'm like, is this like some kind of weird three days of night purge? combination what's happening in this darkness how are we ending one generation and starting anew exactly i want the details those who had restored the commandments would be saved in fortified houses akin to noah's ark where they could take refuge as the final chastisements were delivered to the heathens outside fasting became a requirement for attending prayer sessions until well after 4 p.m and so hunger and mental and physical fragility became prerequisites for attending prayer sessions like the oldest trick in the book 
It's magic right before your eyes. Give me all your money. I am a conduit for God himself. You eat all that food before you go to church. You sleep so good and then see what they can do. Not surprisingly, the message and mission of the movement was greatly dependent upon which leader was delivering it, no shock there, and what their interpretation was, and the ideological goals that they had upon delivering it. Wait a second, do you mean like every other interpretation of every religious text that's ever been in existence that was like, wait a second, I don't like the message of this story, no one's gonna miss that. And wait a second, I bet you what he means here is this, because I have a feeling, just like me, he's got a big old dick. New disciples would need to be prayed over in a ceremony that most resembles an exorcism, where the disciples knelt down on the ground while a handful of leaders prayed over them, casting out the demons they believed were possessing them all, you know, due to their not being in the movement, which is automatic demon possession territory. They would also be beaten at this point, but it was not physical harm directed at the new members. It was rather intended to beat the demon out of them, is what they're trying to say, which, of course, again, sure, you're not beating me with that bat right now. You're beating that demon inside of me. That's what it is. Inside the walls of the centers, speech was strongly discouraged, except in prayer, of course, helping settle disputes between members and upon receiving visitors. Basically, this was the place to be, you guys. It sounds like an utter dream. I don't like to talk at all. I mean, oh my gosh. Free expression was almost entirely done away with, and members were instructed to communicate with sign language, and if they were able, through writing. That old parlor trick. No matter what people were before joining or wanted to be after, there was absolutely no marriage, no dating, no sex within the movement. Everyone was told to wait until the, quote, new world where they could enjoy themselves after the exciting and impending death that was coming for them all. You know, one day, you guys, when you're dead, then you can have sex with each other and enjoy each other's company, but definitely don't do it now because it will big time affect how much dedication you're willing to give me in this cult where I'm not allowing you to do anything. At some point, all the members were required to write down all the sins that they had committed in their lives, again, sounding like the children of God. And maybe it was an effective memory exercise because I'll tell you right now, if I had to write down all of the things that Jeezy Crazy considered to be a sin in the time that I've been alive, I would probably be able to take you back to three weeks ago at best. Another thing that they did that reminded me of Children of God was having certain members act as spies to report on their fellow members to leadership, stoking paranoia, distrust, all the stuff that, again, is keeping you emotionally fragile keeping you easily taken advantage of. And if there is a running theme and any true crime and any capacity story that I've noticed, it's that something is out there whenever people are just at a disadvantage, a darkness that hovers around all of us at every moment of our lives, that you are just put at this right amount of disadvantage and every single can just go terribly wrong for you and it's all over. 
And it's a common thread in so many stories. But again, this is on a grander scale, grander scale, because we have a bunch of people who are being just on a daily basis made to become easier prey for this church. After disclosing all of their sins, the members would spend a period in repentance, which included extra fasting, extra prayer, financial fines, just guilt the shit out of these people until they feel beaten down and defeated and just begging for forgiveness. This is also similar to the People's Temple and Jim Jones' methods of shaming certain members into submission to his demands. And, I mean, so many other cases, right? As I'm sure comes as no surprise, the leadership of the movement didn't exactly adhere to the ultra-strict guidelines that they wanted the rest of the members to live their lives by. What? There were cases of drunkenness and adultery, of priests having affairs with married women, breaking up marriages, just all the most self-righteous behavior. You come around chastising me and you're telling me what to do. You're going around breaking up marriages as a priest. I'll tell you right now. Hypocrisy. In many cases, babies were mysteriously left at church doorsteps, and it wasn't too far of a reach for other members' suspicions to arise about where the babies had come from, most likely the body of the church. At some point toward the end, Credonia, the seer, if you can think back a few minutes, informed a meeting of the leaders of the movement that she received a vision, another vision, telling her that heaven permitted killing. Oh my God, how nice of you to find that out now. This was reported by a deserter and there's no further information about it or what she was alluding to. But what we do know is that she was the most vocal and influential member of the group. So if she was saying shit like that, it's really not great. It would also be revealed that Credonia, for one, punished the children for any tiny infraction of disobedience by kicking them. When confronted about this, she did not deny it, but simply remained silent. It was far from the only account of abuse alleged against the movement leaders. It is said that many babies that were born inside the centers did not live long, and the cause of death for many of them remains a, quote, mystery, much like the cause of death of thousands upon thousands of indigenous children in schools across America and Canada that have quote unquote mysteriously died that I think Kelly and I are going to do an episode about together. Additionally, as time passed, there was a visible deterioration in the physical health of many members, as you would expect in those conditions. In almost all cases, this was due to inadequate nutrition, Paired with the lack of proper medical care, topped off with the effects of hard labor, kind of sounding like a little bit of a, I mean, we can't always compare everything to Nazis, but a little. As the final days approached, the leaders said a vision told them that the members were no longer to call one another by their names, only brother, sister, aunt, uncle, grandmother, grandfather, all likely to begin to take away the humanity of one another and pave way for some murder. It appears that in the days leading up to the big day, the members burned all of their earthly possessions and were preparing to ride out the three days of darkness in their shelters while the rest of the world was destroyed by terrible violence and disaster. 
They had prepared basement pits, likely told that this is where they would be storing their provisions, when in reality these pits would serve as mass graves for most of those who began to question the movement's direction for the end days. By all accounts, many members began to question the cult and its leadership in the days leading up to their deaths. Leadership would hold question-and-answer sessions wherein the disconcerted members would ask questions that they had, generally concerned about just what the fuck was going on, and according to these accounts, the members who did this would somehow mysteriously disappear from the group shortly after asking their questions. When asked what had happened to the disappeared members, the leadership would say that the goddamn Virgin Mary had come and taken them to heaven, (laughs) which isn't at all troubling. With all the discord taking place, the only logical solution the cult had was to quell the uprising before it could become any bigger. And this is what most likely was the cause of all the deaths of those found in the mass graves that I'll talk about in just a moment. So leadership added the newest date of apocalyptic demise, which was set for March 17th, 2000. It was a date that was predicted to come with ceremony and finality. A party was held where they roasted three bulls and drank 70 crates of soft drinks. Getting wild. Reportedly, shortly after the members arrived, nearby villagers heard an explosion and the church went up in a blazing inferno that completely gutted the building, killing over 500 movement members, including dozens of children. The doors and windows in the building had been boarded up to prevent anyone from leaving, and it was clear that these people were strategically burned alive. The investigation into the tragedy and leadership's role in it wasn't seen as taken incredibly seriously by many. Reports on the movement's actions leading up to the mass murder were largely ignored by local government, either due to negligence or some other reason. Once authorities began their investigation into the movement following the fire, hundreds more members would later be unearthed from mass graves across Uganda. Many of the bodies found at various movement centers had been poisoned and stabbed about three weeks prior to the fire at the compound. Various weapons, such as household hose, were found buried with the bodies in the graves, not the ones that you're thinking. That told a story of violence prior to the fires, as these hoes were often used in fatal fights to break an adversary's skull. Ugandan police have disclosed that the bodies showed evidence of stab wounds, hanging, and strangulation on many of the victims that were dug out of the mass graves. Medical examiners determined that the majority of dead members had been poisoned, and police ruled out cult suicide instead, considering it to be mass murder by the movement leadership, because at some point, you just gotta stop chasing it and bring that last day on earth to you and 924 other people. Although it was initially thought that all movement leaders died in the fire, it is now believed that Joseph Kibwitir and Credonia Morinde may actually still be alive if you can even believe it. They've been on the run for this whole time. Last update was that we're reportedly living in Malawi in 2014. And that is the end of the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great life. I'll see you next time.